0: 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the very word of God.
1: Every year we choose a theme for um, a year of sermons, which starts on Labor Day or around Labor Day and runs through the end of August. And so for the past almost a year now, um, we've been concentrating on the theme of the life-giving love of God. We studied the books of Ezekiel and the Song of Songs, where the passionate love of God for His people is well displayed. Hope that you Saul, the passionate love of God for his people throughout those Old Testament books. So what we're going to do this morning is begin a short sermon series. We usually do something like this every year. We call it a our catechesis series, kind of concentrating on one specific theme or subject that is emphasized during our particular cycle of the catechism that we're in, and um, so For the next four weeks, today and the next three weeks, we are going to concentrate on a subject called communion with God. You know, it's one thing to say that God loves us. It's another thing to encounter, experience that love. It's one thing to believe that God is for us. But how sure of that are we in our daily life experiences, like what Psalm 62 is inviting us to know, cry out to him at all times, God is a refuge for us. What does it mean for us as Christians to experience real communion, real fellowship, a meaningful relationship with a real God. This morning, as we introduce this short series, I'd like to ask a different question, and that is, how important is it that Christians have a real communion with God? You you may be thinking, well, that's a nice thing to aspire to, but uh, most Christians probably don't actually get there and I want to ask, well, is it really that important? How important is it that Christians have a real communion of God? And what I want us to see is that unless we Christians make use of our communion with God, we will not be able to clearly proclaim the gospel to the world. Unless we make use of communion with God, then we will not be able to clearly Proclaim good news to the world. I want us to see this morning, and I'm using 2 Corinthians 4 as our text. I want us to see this morning that communion with God is first the inheritance of Christianity. Second, that it is one of the distinctives of our faith. And then this means that our communion with God must be taken up. As a sacred responsibility. Communion with God is our Christian inheritance. Communion with God is our Christian distinctive. And communion with God is our Christian responsibility. Inheritance, distinctive responsibility. So first, communion with God is the inheritance of Christianity. Now, here's what I mean by that when you when you read the New Testament, especially when you read the Apostle Paul, you get the sense that the early Christians would have considered it axiomatic that they were in a vital communion with God Paul, for example, here in verse six and there, there's just you could almost look at any passage, but right here in verse six, he can say things like this: God has Shown in our hearts, like shining his, the light of his reality and his presence right there within our own selves. He can speak as though he has a direct contact with God and knows exactly what God wants. Now, perhaps you've just thought that Paul and the other apostles had this kind of direct contact on a regular basis, Perhaps you've even thought of the fact that we often speak of the scriptures as inspired, that in some way these first Christians had some kind of direct contact with God in a way that none of the rest of us have ever had or could ever have. But that is not what they would say. How then could Paul and the other apostles speak so definitively, so assuredly about what God was up to? God has shown in our hearts, he could say. How could they speak so definitively, so assuredly? How can you and I do the same? And the key for all of them and for us is found in the name Christian. In other words, as Christians, it's all about Jesus the Christ. Now, let's find out how that's so. Ask yourself a simple question when you come to the New Testament. What, what, what is a Christian? What's so unique about Christianity? You're bound to get all kinds of answers if you were to ask that to just the man on the streets today, and probably you'd even get contradictory answers. What kind of answer do we find when we come to the Bible? And what we are looking for here is that which distinguishes a person as a Christian, that which gives them a Christian identity. I I think we could all probably easily recognize that there's a difference between being a, a Christian in the New Testament sense of the word and being Christianized, to grow up in an environment that has been heavily influenced by the Christian faith, might make one easily mistaken as a Christian. But let's go back to the beginning of Christianity, before there was a Christian environment to grow up in, and think it through from that perspective. So first of all, a Christian was someone who was persuaded that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, And the word Messiah, you know this, the word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word for anointing. The the Messiah simply means the anointed one. Now, in Jewish history, in our Old Testament scriptures, there are lots of people who are anointed. There are several persons who are, in, in that sense, messianic. The Lord's anointed is a regular phrase used to denote many of Israel's kings. To be God's anointed meant that the king of Israel was in an exclusive and intimate relationship with God such that he could claim to be God's authorized representative on earth. The king's rule on earth was a participation and extension of God's own rule, of God's own sovereignty. Now, in addition to Israel's kings, Israel's high priests are commonly noted to be anointed, messianic. Even a prophet could be anointed. The point is that the anointed one is in. Jewish thought in Old Testament scriptures is someone who holds an official office within Israel, generally a prophet, a priest, or a king, and would thereby serve in that office as a direct representative of God on earth. Now, uh, as Israel's history unfolded, what is it? We're in... We're in June. How are you doing on your Bible reading? How far, have you, how far have you made it this year? As Israel's history unfolds, you find plenty of examples of these messianic characters. That's the right word for them, isn't it? Who seem to not very well represent God's rule on earth? They they get out of line. And Israel as a nation suffers for these godless messiahs. But God's promise to Israel is that there would come a day, that there would be a, a decisive and lasting change to Israel's story. The, there, would, there would come a day where there would be the inauguration of a, of a new chapter in Israel's history, bringing in a new era That would never end. That is the great hope, the great expectation all throughout the Old Testament. The time you come to the end of the Hebrew Bible, which ends actually with 2 Chronicles, that's the last book in the Hebrew Bible, you have this just anticipation that Israel now in exile is going to have a great change in their story and in their history, that there's gonna come a a, a time, a a kingdom, an, an era where God would bring Israel's great story to its promised end. Now, how exactly that would happen is not precisely spelled out. At least, there are all sorts of different guesses on how this would come to pass, but there would be no question, no doubt that this was the expectation, this was the hope That kept Israel alive all throughout its troubled history. Now, this is what the Christians believed had now already come to pass in the person of Jesus. Jesus, they believed, was the Messiah. We we should probably say the quintessential Messiah. He was. God's appointed prophet, God's appointed priest, and God's appointed king who had now already brought Israel's great story to its climax. He had inaugurated the long-awaited hope. This then is what distinguished the first Christians. By the way, it is often what put them at odds with both Jew and Gentile alike. So they'd go back now to their Old Testament scriptures, which were promising this great hope. And now in light of Jesus, come in the flesh, the apostle John writes at 1 John, we touched him, we saw him, we heard him. Like this objective reality, Jesus Christ in the flesh, they reinterpreted now all of, old, all of the Jewish scriptures with the conviction that all of them were pointing all along to Jesus As the true Messiah. And now, believing that Jesus had in fact brought the long awaited promise to its climax, they began to live like it. How dare them. Refusing at any point to cut a compromise with Gentile pagan authorities. Because if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar definitely was not. So you're going to be in trouble with the Jews reinterpreting the Bible in light of this crucified Savior that you think is the Messiah, and in trouble with Gentile pagan authorities who are always wanting to say, let me tell you who the true Lord is. Now, in verse 5, this is what Paul says is the essence of his proclamation. This is one of the great summaries of the gospel. We sang it earlier and see it right here in our text. In verse 5, Paul says... Here is what we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Feel the weight of every one of those words. Jesus, the real historical Jesus of Nazareth, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is now Lord, King, ruler over all things. This is what we proclaim. And accordingly, Paul says, that makes us your servants for Jesus' sake. We'll come back to that phrase a little later. But this is what framed the entire outlook of the daily life of these first Christians. Their entire business now was to make it plain in word and in deed, their confidence that Jesus had brought the great story to its promised conclusion. Now ask yourself the question. What difference might it make if when we thought of our gospel message, our our Christian proclamation, the first thing that came to our minds was the simple but all-consuming conviction that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is Lord, and we are servants for his sake? What difference would that make if when you begin to think about your day or your week or your month, or your year, we began with the confidence that as Christians, we live our lives working from and out of what is already true rather than working toward what is not yet true. It would make as big a difference as working with the assurance that your labor is not in vain versus not having that assurance. And this is why it is important to grasp the point that the primary way the first Christians identified themselves was with a simple Pauline expression in Christ. They saw themselves as his loyal subjects united to him by faith, by allegiance. Three years ago, we did a catechesis series on union with God, union with Christ. This then was the ground. This became the ground for the early Christians, not only for how they looked at their daily lives, but for the subject we're looking at now, communion with God. Union with God is the basis for our communion with Him. To be a Christian, (laughs) to be a Christian is to be in such union with God that communion with God is just the normal everyday Christian experience. Once we've laid hold of our union with God through faith in Christ as the world's true and rightful Lord, then and only then will we be able to grasp what it means to have communion with God. So let us not think of this subject then as simply something that is for those, you know, you've seen them, those introspective Christians who are concerned about having what seems to you to be strange, esoteric experiences, usually in some extra-prolonged prayer meeting. And let us not assume that communion with God is something for those morning people who like to get up way too early with a cup of coffee and a big study Bible. Like that's, that's what we're talking about. Don't, don't make those kinds of mistakes. The birthright of all Christians is communion with God, and it's not a feature of human personality. It is the treasure of our union with God in Christ. All right, now, not only is communion with God then our inheritance, our birthright, it is also one of, and I've, we've already touched on this, it's already one of the great Christian distinctives. It is, what, it is what separates Christianity from every other religion or worldview. Every religion, every faith, or if you say, I'm not, I'm not religious, I'm not a person of faith. Well, okay, fine. Every, every worldview has elements that make it unique and distinct, differentiates it from every other perspective. And when it comes to Christianity, perhaps a number of things could be said to be that which makes it most unique. I'm not claiming that this is the only thing, but I do want us to see here how communion with God is one of the most distinctive features of Christianity. It is what makes us as Christians very, very different from those who are not Christians. So look at here, verses three to five, Paul points out the distinction this way. He says, unbelievers have their minds blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, wait just a moment. Before you and I as Christians feel too good about ourselves with that verse, We're we're the enlightened ones. Before you you do that, look at verse 5. It begins with the word for, demonstrating that what Paul is about to say here in verse 5 is meant to explain what he has just said. Here is what makes us Christians different, if indeed we are true Christians. Here's what he says, for... What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And then he adds, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, now, the first thing to observe here is that Christians do not proclaim themselves. We don't preach ourselves. Rather, we preach Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord Meaning, if Jesus is Lord, we're not. Make sense? Now that is very, very distinctive. You see, what is the distinction that Paul is out to make in these verses? He's wanting to say that a very real difference comes when we proclaim, believe, Jesus is Lord. What he is talking about here is the utter transformation that takes place when a person becomes convinced that Jesus and Jesus alone rules the universe. Go back to the beginning of the chapter and notice that this profession is what led Paul and his colleagues to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways and to refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So as an apostle of Jesus, he was given the commission to spread this good news that Jesus is Lord as far, as wide as possible. And having become convinced that Jesus was Lord, he renounced, he says, any hint of disgraceful, underhanded ways. Do you see the connection? If Jesus is Lord, and I'm not, There is no need for me to resort to disgraceful, underhanded ways. No no reason to have to cover up true intentions. He says he refused here in his mission, in his life, to make use of any kind of cunning or trickery to gain a hearing. And he says that he would not resort to any kind of misuse of the Scriptures to try to score points with his audience. So in short, Paul was convinced that Jesus is Lord, whether anybody else believed it or not. So he did not need to use any kind of questionable tactics to get people to sign up to his cause. Listen, he wasn't trying to start a business and in need of investors to support his endeavor. He was simply proclaiming a fact, what he calls in verse 2, the open statement of the truth, and then gladly, willingly, inviting anyone who'd listen to not only investigate the claim he was making, but even investigate his motives. You see, when it comes to religion or worldview, we are eager, aren't we, if we're honest? We are eager to see that everybody around us shares our perspective, our religion, our worldview. We want converts, but so many times, if we're honest, the kind of converts we're looking for are just converts to ourselves. We want people to think the way that we do. We want them to share our opinions about how the world ought to be, don't you? It makes us feel justified in our own beliefs and opinions when others share those beliefs and opinions. In fact, I dare say that none of us really values diversity, at least Not until we begin to preach Christ and not ourselves. Here is what's distinctive about Christianity. The Christian message simply can never be about us, nor our culture, not our country, and not even our own convictions. Those things may not be wrong, But the gospel we preach must never be confused with the culture we live in or the country that we call home. In other words, Christianity is distinctive because it's not about Jesus getting into us and endorsing our perspective on everything. It's about us getting into Jesus and seeing everything from his perspective that's not an easy task, given our own biases. It's more tempting for us to, if we're honest, come to our own conclusions about pretty much anything, and then find a way, find a, even find a Bible verse, to plug Jesus on top of it. Give a stamp of endorsement. And that's why there's so much confusion today about what we think Jesus supports and what we are quite sure he doesn't support. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It seems that virtually everyone has learned the trick of coming to the Bible and finding a way to say, here it is, Jesus supports my view. <laughs> right? Okay, i got to get more specific. It's the month of June. There's plenty of people during the month of June who are eager to say, Jesus is on the side of the LGBTQ community. Plenty of people saying that. And, in case you didn't know, there are plenty of people ready to reply that Jesus views the community, the LGBTQ community, the same way just God viewed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, which is it? Would Jesus fly a rainbow flag or would he burn it up? I suspect he probably would do neither. Anyone. Reading the Gospels can see that Jesus seems to never be on this side of an argument or the other. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't come to put his stamp of approval on what we preach of ourselves. He comes to bring us out of ourselves and to see the world from his perspective. Now, what does this have to do with communion with God? Simply this. What makes Christianity unique is that we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. We must not preach anyone or anything else. And yet this is what we can easily end up doing. Any of us who've ever stood behind a pulpit and preached know this challenge. Just read your Bible and then to try to begin to make application. Am I preaching myself? Or am I preaching Christ? So no wonder then... We hear things like this. These are things I've heard. Maybe you've heard them before. You know, I I, I would like to be a Christian, but I don't want to be a Republican. Are we preaching Christ? Are we preaching ourselves? Or I would like to be a Christian, but I don't want to hate gay people. Are we preaching Christ? Or sadly, are we preaching ourselves? I've even heard this. I can't be a Christian because I'm not an American. (laughs) Are we preaching ourselves or are we preaching Christ? For far too long, too many Christians, if they're honest, and if they were convicted by what Paul is talking about here, would have to admit we've been proclaiming a different Messiah. God help us. What is needed then is for us to take up our Christian distinctive. Don't you see? Stop preaching ourselves. You can make it uncomfortable for all of us. I think the late Tim Keller famously tweeted one time, if your God never contradicts you, then you might be preaching a God made in your own image. Hmm. We... Made to take up this distinctive, this unique message of the Christian faith, proclaiming that the saving message of Jesus is getting out of ourselves and into the anointed one. That's the message we Christians must preach. And by the way, lastly, it's the duty that we Christians must pursue. In other words, our communion with God is not just about our inheritance. I'm trying to get us to see in this series no matter how great a Christian you think you are or how small a Christian you think you are, communion with God is not a second blessing. It's not something you have to aspire to. It is something that is yours simply by being united to Christ. And I'm trying to get us, I'm trying to help us to think this through, that our communion with God is what makes us distinct from every other gospel, every other message that can be proclaimed. And therefore, it is so central to Christianity that it simply must be all of our responsibility. I don't want a single member of this church, a single person who professes faith in Christ to say, I, I don't know about this communion with God. I don't know what that means. I don't have that experience. I don't understand it. That's why we're doing this series. Take a look here at verse 6 we see Paul making use in this verse of what God did when he created the universe. Do you see it? Look at it. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You know what he's talking about, right? That was day one of your Bible reading this year. That's Genesis 1-3. The God who said, Genesis one 3, let there be light, and there was light. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, remember this creative act of God, what God did in the beginning. Remember that? You've read it now. God has done it again. That's what he's saying. What God did in the beginning, he has done in a new beginning. This very same God, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 here is further explanation for verse 5. We said verse 5 was explanation of verse 4. Well, verse 6, it's typical Pauline writing, is more explanation on top of verse 5. What God has done for us in Christ, he has then done for the world That's why the late J.I. Packer could say that communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. So what did God do in the beginning? He made a world. Why? To have communion. To have fellowship with his image bearers. You know the gospel story. You know that after having made the world, created the world for fellowship, for communion, that we human creatures, his image bearers, decided we had a better plan. And we would form God in our image rather than rejoicing in the great privilege it is to be made in His. Now, what God has done in Christ is a new creation. Just what God did in Genesis 1 3, He has already done in Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And you are a part of it, you're a part of the story. This is your great privilege. But it is therefore then our great responsibility, because God made the world in the beginning so we might have fellowship with him, share in, and enjoy his glory, multiply, fill the earth, spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord everywhere. And so what do you think then is the purpose for which God has started his new creation? For which God has begun in Christ to do and make all things new once more? so we might have fellowship with him, that we could share in and enjoy his glory. And this glory is to be shared in and enjoyed in Christ himself for the sake of the world. Did you see it? Look what he says in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I didn't expect that. I would have thought he would have said, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as his servants. That's not how he says it. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for his sake. This is exactly the the creation order. God made a world, made his image bearers so that they would then, for his sake, to his world, make much of God in fellowship with him so that the world would come to its intended completion. This is then the reason that God has begun a new creation in Jesus Christ. It becomes then our responsibility if we're reunited to him by faith. Jesus is Lord, he says, but we are your servants for Jesus' sake. God has redeemed us for communion with him, and this then makes us servants to all of creation for his sake. So it's my belief then, my conviction, that one of the reasons that the church has lost our influence for Christ is because we've forsaken our communion with him. One of the reasons we've lost our influence for Christ is because we've forsaken our communion with him. Our message has become almost without notice just another preaching of ourselves. So in the next three weeks, as we consider what the Bible has to tell us about how to be in communion with God for the sake, uh, for for the world, for his sake, may God help us to become more devoted to Christ. May our message be only Jesus and not ourselves. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now for your mercy and grace. Your mercy first, because the great joy of our Christian fellowship and gospel proclamation is to know that in Christ, there is the joy of repentance every time. Once we've begun to see that we have gotten off mission, we've gotten off track, we're proclaiming ourselves and not Christ. We've lost our distinction. We've lost the power of Jesus as Lord to a world that desperately needs to hear about what we sang earlier, your kindly rule, your kindly rule has shattered and broken. The curse of sin's tyranny. So we can come And confess, we can come and not have to hide, not have to have underhanded ways to cover up our motives which have been off from your mission. Because in Christ, every time there's repentance, every time there's grace, every time there's mercy. So we ask for your mercy. But oh Lord, we ask, we ask now for your help, for your power to be manifested by your Holy Spirit in all who are truly yours. Oh, so remind us of our union with God in Christ day by day that we might, having enjoyed this communion that we have with you, be sent out then as servants for Christ's sake. Grant us this, we pray, in the next three weeks as we study this together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, as we come to the table this morning, we come to a place with real food, real drink.